How's it going, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavir, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to my friend, Dr. Will Cole. Dr. Cole is a leading functional medicine expert, and he consults with people all around the world via webcam and locally in his office in Pittsburgh. He specializes in clinically investigating the underlying factors of chronic disease, and he customizes health programs for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal dysfunctions, digestive disorders, and brain problems. His new book, is called The Inflammation Spectrum, and over the course of the next hour, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of what inflammation is, how to know if you're inflamed, why an anti-inflammatory dietary and lifestyle approach is not one-size-fits-all. He's going to share a unique eyebrow trick that can let you know whether or not your thyroid hormones are out of balance, and so much more. He's a wealth of knowledge, as you guys are going to see. And what I think is really fun is that later in the episode, we share our respective journeys to health and wellness. Um, and I talk about some of the crazy diets that I myself tried back when I was in high school that I would never try again. But just, you know, sort of... Uh, a testament to the fact that I've always been a bit of a tinkerer, um, even when my friends and family thought that I was crazy for uh, doing so. So this is going to be a fun chat, and uh, I'm excited for you to listen to it. But before we get to it, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show, and that is my good friends at Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic, in case you haven't heard, they make a line of wonderful medicinal mushroom-infused products from coffees to elixirs to uh, protein powders and smoothie um, powders that you can throw into your smoothies. There's a lot of mushroom products on the market right now, and Four Sigmatic products are among the highest quality that I've seen. All of their um, mushroom elixirs are made using the fruiting bodies of the mushrooms, which is really where the magic is. Um, a lot of uh, cheaper mushroom companies are going to use mushroom mycelium, um, which is not as effective. And uh, when you spend your money on food products, supplements, and things like that, I want you guys to know that you are getting the highest quality um, that's out there, and Four Sigmatic is among uh, the top. The other thing that I appreciate about them is that they make options for people who drink coffee and those who don't. If you drink coffee, I think that their Lion's Mane uh, infused coffee is great. It's a staple for me when I am uh, drinking coffee, and when I'm not, I love their Lion's Mane elixir. To give anything that Four Sigmatic produces a try, all you gotta do is go to foursigmatic.com max or use promo code max, and you'll get to save a whopping 15% off of everything um, and anything in their online store. That's the biggest discount that you're gonna find for Four Sigmatic anywhere. So again, that's foursigmatic.com slash max or promo code max for 15% off of everything in their online store. Now guys, before we get started, please take a moment to leave a rating and review for this show on iTunes. I would very much appreciate it. Like this review from Scarlet Fire 3. She wrote, Best of the best. It's obvious Max works countless hours curating his guests and their combined wealth of knowledge. His shows are gold standard and contain information every human should have about their own health. Thank you, Max, for such quality journalism and a big heart. I love every episode. Well, Scarlet Fire 3, that means the world to me to hear that. I really appreciate that you took the time out of your busy day to leave that glowing uh, review. And I read every review, I see every rating, and I'm always looking to improve this show. So please let me know what I could be doing better, what you want to see more of and um, yeah that would be great the second way that you can support the genius life of course is by spreading the word about it please guys tell your friends relatives co-workers dog cat anything with ears really um, about the genius life and spread the message on, on social media by continuing to grow the audience it's going to help me week after week bring you high quality interviews um, and ultimately it's going to earn you karma points because whoever you tell is going to benefit from the wealth of knowledge that my guests like dr will cole bring to the table. All right, well, we're just seconds away from uh, this chat. I'm excited for you to um, 
to listen to it after listening. Don't forget, Dr. Cole has a new book out. It's called The Inflammation Spectrum. It's been getting rave reviews. I think it hit number, I don't know, eight on Amazon out of all books, which is pretty amazing um, the week that it came out. So uh, strap in your seatbelts and let's rock. Dr. Will Cole, what's going on? My man, Max. Dude, from, from all the way out of Pittsburgh. Yeah. We got you in LA. Yeah. What brings you to LA? You're promoting your new book, huh? Yeah, it's Inflammation Spectrum. So I'm doing the, the book stuff this week and back to patients, consulting online. That's my day job is not writing books. <laughs> it's consulting patients via webcam, which I love. It keeps me sharp. Nice. Uh, yeah, so I'm out here for a couple of days. Thanks for having me. That's awesome. You're, uh, you just came out, you had a book previously, it was Ketotarian, which yes, was awesome. It was sort of like a plant-focused Mm-hmm. iteration of the keto diet which i definitely appreciate yeah thanks because you know you see all these people doing the keto diet and it's like butter and bacon yeah and heavy cream and yeah. you know blocks of cheese and stuff mm-hmm. and um and so i thought that was a really innovative approach thank you i appreciate that yeah and that's why on the cover of ketotarian i said mostly plant-based because i didn't want to piss off the vegans too much or any i don't want to piss anybody off but <laughs> the reality is i uh i just wanted to have uh, my approach, like the way that I eat and the way that I see a lot of people benefit from ketosis, gaining that metabolic flexibility, but doing it a way that works for the average person and how to do it in a clean, sustainable way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the keto diet, people kind of like, I think are very, very zealous, ze- over, perhaps over zealously j- are jumping on the bandwagon these days, but it's a really hard diet to adhere to. Yeah. I, I The way that I advocate it and this is when you read ketotarian I basically after the eight weeks of being mostly plant-based again that's vegan vegetarian and pescatarian that's the way that i do it so it's still predominantly plant-centric but focusing on wild cut fish for seafood and eggs and things like that um and lots of avocados olives and the plant fats now after eight weeks that gives the body some time for metabolic flexibility and the way that i advocate it for most people is to do a cyclical approach mm. so like ketosis four to five days out of the week and then the remaining days of the week you would moderate your carbs and what i mean by that is 50 to 150 grams of carbs nothing crazy but in the low carb to moderate carb state where you're not producing ketones maybe trace amount of ketones depending on how insulin sensitive you are mm-hmm. uh, but you've built that metabolic flexibility you can go in and out of it if you want a lot of women do well with that uh, around their period like around their period and around ovulation they'll do that a lot of people will do well with that around like heavy exercise because i believe unless someone's insulin resistant has a neurological problem or has like they're using the ketogenic diet to manage some health problem. I think the goal should be to gain metabolic flexibility then to have the keep that metabolic flexibility by still burning some kindling on the fire, still burning sugar when when you want to or when you need to. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What do you think about all these people that are like chasing ketones, almost like a keto high score? Yeah. You know, testing their blood and their breath and things like that. It is. It is a uh, product of the biohacking community. And then it really taps into the dieting culture that we have of like meeting this certain equation or like hitting this certain mark and the sort of competitive nature with oneself. And to me, it's feeding into... For unless someone's a biohacker that can separate the data and not to emotionally chart, be emotionally charged with it, it's feeding into a lot of disordered eating, I think, hmm. um, because of becoming overly fearful about anything that could diminish 
uh, ketones. So they feel like they're failing at the diet if they have like less ketones in a day. And I, these are the questions that I get. It's like, what am I doing wrong? I'm like, you're doing nothing wrong, actually. Yeah. The ketones is a snapshot in time. And higher, more ketones isn't necessarily better and needed unless it's a, for a therapeutic benefit and you're using it for some, you know, improving cognitive function or, uh, you know, uh, helping like uh, people with MS that are trying to get hit a certain mark to manage their health problem. Uh, I, to me, I see it as, are you in the zone or are you not in the zone? Are you burning some level of ketones or not? And then it, there are times when you're not going to be burning any, and that's fine too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, and I think metabolic flexibility, that's like the holy grail, I think, yeah. of why we diet and why mm-hmm. we you know, exercise and get to the gym. We want to be, I think, more efficient fat burners. And one of the byproducts of that is going to be inevitably the generation of ketones, ketogenesis. Yeah, exactly. Um, but to like, to chase that, you know, f- as an end in and of itself, I think is, um, yeah, I think it's a little, it's kind of putting the cart before the horse. If you're not, exactly. if you're not metabolically flexible and if you are metabolically flexible, then that's great. You can have your carbs. I mean, that's like, the, that's like you get to have your cake and eat it too, literally. Yeah. And the, the more people are fat adapted, you're going to see slightly lower ketones for a lot of people. And then that's not necessarily bad either. Your body's just better at burning that. Um, and yeah, so it's a big conversation. But I think being so hyper-focused and myopic on just ketone levels is missing the broader point of why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. So tell me about the inflammation spectrum. In this new book, is this like a keto approach or is it more generally just about modulating inflammation, which, you know, I want you to tell us all about. Yeah. So I talk about the concept of the inflammation spectrum in ketotarian as because beta-hydroxybutyrate ketone downregulates inflammation. It brings down these pro-inflammatory cytokines. Uh, But I wanted to have a deep dive in this book called The Inflammation Spectrum to show all the other ways to bring inflammation levels down, not just through ketosis. So the plans in the book could be keto-friendly if someone wanted to eat that, but it wasn't one way of eating. I wanted people, no matter how they ate, whether it was like a just a whole foods diet or paleo or keto or more plant-based or more carnivorous, what food under that paradigm works best for you. So for example, like in ketotarian, some of the recipes use eggs, some of the recipes use nuts and seeds, some of the recipes use uh, uh, ghee, clarified butter. Not everybody does good with those foods. So if they're going to go ketotarian, let's find a a way to make ketotarian bio-individual. And that's the heart of functional medicine is finding out what your body loves, what your body doesn't like, no matter how you eat. Um, So that was the exploration that I wanted to have in the book to show how to find out what words, foods work for you and what doesn't, but then have a conversation about all the non-food stuff that helps to lower inflammation. Because as you and I both know, it's not just about food. We have to look at stress. We have to look at sleep. We have to look at social connection. We have to look at screen time and social media addiction. We have to look at toxicity. These are the things that I talk to patients about beyond food where they got the food thing down pretty good, but then they're not realizing that they're really being inundated with a lot of other things that are impacting where they want to be. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And the book is really interactive. You have like quizzes and ways for people to really get, I mean, in as much as you can get a targeted personalized recommendation from a book, uh, it, it's pretty thorough. Thank you so much. I, it took me a while to get that down, right? Because it is hard to encapsulate bio-individuality or diversity of people in a book, but I adapted the quiz from questions that I ask patients. Hmm. So I want them to go on this sort of 
self-experiment to see like, okay, let's see the methodology of functional medicine. Let's kind of find out where I'm at on the inflammation spectrum. And then here's a toolbox based on what area is the highest or the lowest. Um, and then what plan is the most appropriate for me? So it is as, in my opinion, as tailored and bio-individual as you can get in a book. I love it. Well, let's like take a step back and do like a one-on-one crash course Cliff's Notes Guide to Inflammation for yeah. listeners who, you know, maybe hear this word thrown about countless times in the wellness yeah. world. Like we hear inflammation all the time, but what actually is inflammation and what, and then what is it, you know, there are obvious, there are going to be different types of inflammation, but what are the kinds that we need to be most worried about? Yeah, you're right. So it is thrown about and it, it's, it's a sort of, um, ambiguous word for people, but it is a product of our immune system. So actually inflammation isn't inherently bad. It's needed. Um, from an evolutionary ancestral health perspective, we would be not here if it wasn't for healthy inflammation. It fights viruses and bacteria it heals our body. It's a good thing, but just like a lot of stuff in our body and in the environment, it's about balance and chronic inflammation, inflammation out of balance is the problem. So inflammation chronically uh, high is associated with just about every health problem out there from autoimmune conditions, which are most of my patients, people with hormonal insulin resistance, leptin resistance, thyroid resistance, resistance patterns, as far as the receptor sites are concerned on a cellular level, um, obviously heart disease, cancer, to even the, the neurological inflammatory component, which I know you live and breathe this stuff, but people aren't aware and you're doing great things to to open that uh, the conversation up. It's much needed because I think that's actually one of the least known. Hmm. They don't realize that anxiety and depression and fatigue and brain fog and these things, research suggest, suggests for a lot of people, have inflammatory components. And this cytokine model, this inflammatory model of cognitive function is widely not known about. And we like to separate mental health from physical health, but it's mental health is physical health. Wow. So walk me through this. So if I have inflammation in one part of my body, say in my gut, how could that possibly affect what's going on in my brain? <clears throat> Good question. So, and that's the, this, a certain part on the inflammation spectrum, the way that I outline it in the book is that there's seven main sections. And we look, talk about the brain and the gut and the hormones and the muscles and the detox system and all of the different systems of the body on the inflammation spectrum. Mm. But the eighth is the, is polyinflammation. It's the interconnectedness of the body. So specifically on what you're talking about, the gut, your gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue. I know that you know all this, but for people that are listening, the gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue and they're linked for the rest of our life through the gut brain axis, the enteric nervous system, through the vagus nerve. And they even you know, physically resemble each other, the brain and the gut. 95% of our serotonin is made in the gut, stored in the gut, and it's 75% of the immune system. So when you're dealing with inflammation, which is a product of the immune system, we have to look at where the predominance of the immune system resides. So uh, the research is exciting. And I know you go into, you, you explain this very well, eloquently, but what happens in the gut doesn't always just stay in the gut. And there's a lot of gut-centric components to inflammation and gut-centric uh, components to mental health issues. So we have to look at in the second brain as, as the scientific literature refers to the gut. That's amazing. And the, there's all these like signaling molecules, right, that are involved in the inflammatory cascade mm -hmm. that don't, they don't just, it's, you know, the gut's not like Vegas. What happens there, as you mentioned, doesn't stay there. So these, these signaling chemicals, cytokines, yeah. right, they travel all throughout the body. And it's only recently, I think, that, that 
doctors and scientists really acknowledge the fact that these can actually cross into the brain mm. and elicit a an a, you know an immune response in the brain. Yeah, and homocysteine and an inflammatory marker that in functional medicine we want under seven, above seven. You start creeping those, that inflammatory mark high, higher. It acts as a, as you know, a neurotoxin and can mm. increase blood-brain barrier permeability and activate those microglial cells, the brain immune cells. Uh, so what you know, people know and he, have heard about leaky gut or what we call in functional medicine, leaky gut can cause a leaky brain or increase blood-brain barrier permeability, and that's just not that's documented in the scientific literature. But also you can measure the Thing, these things on labs that we run for patients. You can measure uh, increased zonulin and occluding. You can measure these proteins that govern the permeability of these junctions. And you can measure neurological autoimmunity or antibodies against neurological tissue uh, on blood labs. So this is um, something that I see impact people's uh, often uh, to various degrees on an hourly basis, sadly. But the other side of it is, as you know well, there's a lot that we wield. There's a lot of influence that we wield on our biochemistry. So while it's sobering to go over these statistics, there's a lot of power that we have in most cases. Yeah. Talk to me about labs. So you can actually measure zonulin in serum. Uh-huh. And zonulin, just for people who don't know, so zonulin is this protein that basically regulates tight junction integrity in the body, right? So that, yeah. that it's there at the um, tight junctions between the epithelial cells of the gut that separate, separate the interior lining of the gut from circulation, but then also zonulin is expressed at the blood-brain barrier too, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be this uh, selectively permeable, um, you know, drawbridge, drawbridge sort of system, mm -hmm. allowing only in what the brain needs, keeping out you know potential toxins and things like that. So zonulin is this potentially very important compound when it comes to brain health. Yeah, zonulin, I think of it as like a zipper, like it opens and occludins more of like an occluder. But yeah, it's just sort of gut gatekeepers and brain gut, gut, uh, uh, gatekeepers as well. Uh, so yeah, we measure these on blood labs. There's a several different labs that do that. Um, so when it's clinically appropriate, when it makes sense, when we want to kind of see the mechanism at play here uh, to explain maybe some why somebody is having these neurological autoimmune symptoms. Why are they having this persistent anxiety despite doing all the things? Why are they having the persistent neurological symptoms? Uh, uh, this is something that we explore. Wow. What are some other tests that you run to, to get a sense of somebody's you know, level of inflammation? The basic tests that we run, anybody can run them. You, and they're low, low cost, generally speaking, and you don't need a functional medicine doctor to run them. But high sensitivity C-reactive protein, we would want HSCRP to be under one. It's an inflammatory marker. So the American Heart Association, the CDC, they typically will have these guidelines on the conventional lab because they're looking at it from a cardiovascular standpoint. But we know it's also a surrogate lab for these other interleukins that are associated with just about everything. So you can have high sensitivity C-reactive protein and it not be just the heart issue or impacting just the heart, but because the body's interconnected, it's impacting other things in the body. Um, and then a homocysteine under seven. Ferritin is another one where it's a mm. biomarker for stored iron, but it's an acute phase reactant. So basically, in states of inflammation, you'll see ferritin spike higher as well. Um, so those are more of the basic tests. And then some additional like deeper dive functional medicine tests that I run for patients would be the gut components. So measuring things like calprotectin, lysozyme, these sort of uh, immune markers in the gut that will show, be indicative of an inflammatory response. Mm. Uh, that's a stool test. You're not going to get that from a basic uh, lab. Even though there are blood tests that conventional doctors will run in certain cases, you rarely see it being done. Um, and then looking at 
those food reactivities, looking at intestinal permeability, looking at blood-brain barrier permeability, looking at cross-reactive foods, um, like foods that mimic gluten mm-hmm. um, that some people have problems with. And that is uh, a lab that I think is helpful for a lot of people on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum. Um, and um, looking at the genetic component too, because I almost see the, the genetics as like the, like the bowl size. Like some people have small bowls, some people have big bowls. And these people with these methylation gene variants, people with these like endocannabinoid gene variants, they're oftentimes the people that I talk to. Hmm. They're like, they're doing all the health stuff, but they're still struggling. And they can't get away with the, they don't have the food flexibility that a lot of people have because their body's reacting to all of these problems. So those are some of the things that I look at to get a workup and basically get multiple labs perspective. Like what the heck's going on here? Because this person's really struggling and doesn't feel well. Yeah, I want to go into the foods that and the and the lifestyle, um, you know, aspects that uh, promote inflammation and then you know sort of the antidote to those. But first, I get asked a lot about food sensitivity tests. Yeah, um, and I I see comments on sort of both sides of the of the argument. Some are in favor of them and some mm-hmm. are against them. Um, what are your thoughts on, on food sensitivity testing? I don't run them very often. So I, uh, to me, it has less to do with the food for most people and more to do with the intestinal permeability. Because hmm. what happens is you'll get labs back. And look, if someone wants them, then I'll run them for them. I'm not going to say not or shame them or think that. If they want that data about their health and they sort of want to just, they're curious about their that response, then of course I'll advocate for it. But I educate them about it. I'll just say, look, this is probably more to do with a leaky gut response or intestinal permeability less to do with whatever food that's positive on there um, especially when you're first meeting somebody and they're coming into the clinic and we're, we're consulting them online and they're having all these problems you can assume there's going to be some level of inflammatory response some level of immune reactivity to some degree um, and what I find is for a lot of people it feeds into their stress and anxiety and like a like disillusionment on what the heck's going on and it makes them fear food even more because all these foods come back positive um but what i do where i do find it's clinically appropriate is later on in the healing journey when things have calmed down then you could run these labs and you'll see maybe it's like two or three foods and i have seen going off of those foods or at least not having them every day and keeping things uh more diverse you can see uh moving past a plateau Hmm. um but the exception to that also is the cross-reactive foods. So the, that's a bit different because it's foods that mimic gluten. So it's as if you never had gone gluten-free. But yet if somebody's having a neurological response or some autoimmune response to, to gluten, but yet their immune system's cross-reacting, having that molecular mimicry against corn or rice or eggs or dairy, these gluten-free options that people could be having. From a functional medicine perspective, most of us would say – you need to remove those foods for good because they are perpetuating that inflammatory response specific to that person. So that's typically Cyrex lab. Rishta Vajdani is one of the leading immunologists in the space. So not everybody needs that lab. I don't run that super, super often, but sometimes it's needed for people that are stuck at plateaus and we've like done so many other things, but they're still like maybe 60% better, 70% better, but there's still some missing pieces to the puzzle. So that may be clinically appropriate for some people. Yeah. I mean, would those people be people with overt, you know, celiac 
celiac disease or yeah. allergies or to see what foods could potentially pull that trigger? I run that more for celiacs and people that have some celiac markers that not, are not full-blown celiacs. I run that lab on them more than any people and people with MS that have very obvious responses to wheat. Hmm. Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in LA, I feel like I meet, I encounter a new person every week who's like, I just got, I just had a food sensitivity test and I can't eat green beans ever again. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. So you're saying that it's basically, it's li- it's unlikely to be the food, but that's more sort of a surrogate marker of the fact that you've got some gut dysbiosis going on. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've got some leaky gut. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because it's oftentimes, and there, this isn't always true, but it's oftentimes food that people have on a regular basis. Hmm. About 70% of the time, you'll see that being the case. And then it depends on the person. But then uh, then for some people, it's like tons of foods that they don't even eat. And it's like, what the heck's going on here? There's just uh, this hyper-inflammatory immune reactivity that's going on that this is not helpful from a practical clinical standpoint. This is not practical from just a real life, what the heck do I do with this data standpoint? And we want to make this practical and realistic and like what's actually the problem here and go upstream and not just base your diet off of a snapshot in time of one lab. Yeah. Makes total sense. What would you say are the chief uh, instigators of the inflammatory cascade in people today? No surprise to you, but I would say grains would be number one. Mm. So grains, both gluten-containing grains and some gluten-free grains, depending on the person. And look, every food that I'm going to mention here, everybody has their bowl size. Some people can tolerate more than other people. We can't change our bowl size or genetic tolerance to these things, but we can change what we put in them. But grains, dairy, sugar, added sugar, and high omega-6 oils. Uh, industrial seed oils, canola oil, things like that, vegetable oil. Uh, That would be what I call in the inflammation spectrum, the core four foods that if you're lower on the inflammation spectrum, if you're just like hearing this information for the first time, you know, you don't feel optimal, lean into removing those for a little bit. I recommend those four foods for four weeks, then reintroduce them and see what your body loves or doesn't love. Because you may find the person that's listening to this, that maybe you do fine on two of those foods, but not And you can't really call sugar and oil foods, but (laughs) things in foods, right? But uh, And then the more advanced, uh, higher levels on the quiz score, the higher inflammatory marker people, uh, I do the core four plus four more or the eliminate, which is adding those four plus nightshades, eggplants, peppers, tomatoes, goji berries, peppers, that kind of stuff, white potatoes, and uh, eggs, legumes, nuts and seeds. So those can all be fine to have as part of someone's diet. I'm not demonizing those things. But what I'm saying is this is bioindividuality. These are what I want people to explore, what works for them, what doesn't. Because I know people that have problems with some of those foods and some people that don't have problems with those foods. Um, and we can talk about the genetic SNPs and all the variables that and the gut uh, diversity that can impact these food reactivities. But uh, these are the things that I see most often in different you know, varieties amongst people. Hmm. So if people aren't doing better, markedly better, having, ha- having removed the core four, and I love your naming structure, by the way, that's very, very good. You ever need to play on words, man. <laughs> you're, you're, you're the man uh, to, I, I, to this, see. The next book, I, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like telling my wife and like making notes <laughs> in my phone. Dude, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the core four, um, then you've got the additional sort of like the one step, you know, more advanced yeah. uh, version of the elimination diet. Yeah. So these are, And still, in clinical nutrition and functional medicine, in the health space, the gold standard for food reactions is not labs. 
it's an elimination diet approach. Hmm. So this, you're gonna, you're not gonna get better data than just self-experimentation here on like checking in, and that's maybe the follow-up, what people want, ask then like, well, what am I noticing when I bring this back in? Yeah. I would say it's an amplification of any symptom you're trying to improve, if it's food mediated, if it's actually improved or, or worsened with food. Um, and that's a bigger conversation that I have in the book is it's not just food like the things I mentioned. It's stress and all of the other sleep and all of the other things. But for the sake of food, I want to see if, if a food's impacting the symptom, let's see if it's increasing when I bring it back in. Because mm. why? It's an, it's an upregulation of these inflammatory cascades. And it could be anything. Digestive problems is the most common, but it could be anxiety. It could be fatigue. It could be the skin breakout, the flare up of the skin. It could be any number of inflammatory symptoms. Yeah. How do you, you talked a little bit, you mentioned earlier briefly, like the problem with disordered eating and that, you yeah. know, I feel like you host Goop Fellas. Goop mm -hmm. is, you know, it's a largely female reaching um, mm -hmm. publication. Do you find that uh, disordered eating is common mm -hmm. among women today? I do. Yeah. I think in, in some ways, the lack of nuance to the conversation, like the wellness world has added to that problem unintentionally i don't definitely not but the problem is the things that are coming out of the wellness community of which we're both a part of it's a real problem food reactions the levels of autoimmunity all of these real physiological problems that food is impacting both positively and negatively is really going on mm -hmm. so to not talk about it is ludicrous right but the nuance and the context is lost to the lay person sometimes and they don't have a vessel to even absorb the content and the information. So they're just hearing this and it's spilling over them and it's creating this anxiety and stress and this problem. So we did not mean it to be like this, right? but then they're like, what the heck should I eat? Cause like I'm hearing this and they're not hearing this and Dr. Google's confusing them. Yeah. So what do we do, man? <laughs> uh, we're, we're here, you know, we're, we're in a very privileged position to be able to reach people and to write books. So, I mean, how can we be more, I guess, responsible in our messaging, you know, because we are at the end of the day trying to help, but yeah, yeah. we don't, we don't want to add to the stress. I think that you actually do a great job at doing that because you are not making big, broad sweeping statements on things. So I don't really put you into that category. Um, but I think that to answer your question, I think that longer formed content like podcasts actually helps hmm. out because I think the articles, there's like a word count thing and it's like a specific topic, the five things that are going to cause all the problems mm -hmm. in your world. And it, then it's like leaving the person like, what the heck do I do? These five things are the worst versus this. We're allowed to like extrapolate on that and bring context to what we're talking about. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Nuance is, is crucially important. I always try to imbue my work. Uh, with nuance. So thank you for, for picking up on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, these longer form, longer form conversations I think are crucial. Yeah. It's a, it's a problem. Like, I guess it's like diet culture, but I don't even think it's not, I mean, I guess there's like a, there's a verbiage issue that, that I'm not super, that I don't necessarily jive with. Cause I think that like, you know, dieting is like an important tool for people who are overweight, right. Mm -hmm. To lose weight and to pick a lifestyle that works for them. Yeah. Um, I think the problem comes from what, from supplement manufacturers or, you know, even influencers or book authors who are not necessarily, who don't have their audience's best interests at heart. Maybe their focus is more on making money or selling mm -hmm. a product or what have you. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. It's, it, they're trying to get a message out there and it's, and the products may be helping people, but it's not, uh, 
the nuance is lost and there's no context because they're trying to sell something. So I think we all could do better with just balancing out our message. And I really, and that's the heart of the inflammation spectrum is really just to find out what your body loves and doesn't love. While we talk a lot about a sobering statistics of inflammation, all that stuff, we have to talk about it. But let's like bring a grace and balance and lightness back into wellness and context back into wellness that I think is lost in our you know, Instagram caption society. Absolutely. So when it comes to the foods that we should be eating, um, obviously there's no one size fits all diet and everybody is, is different, but, um, are there any foods or practices or uh, sort of eating paradigms that you, uh, recommend in the inflammation spectrum that my listeners can sort of take away and, and integrate into their, into mm-hmm. their diets, lifestyles? I would say what I, what I implore them to do is to find out what their inflammation levels look like, even if it's just subjectively, even if they don't run the labs, just to kind of check in with their body. And you can take the quiz or not take the quiz, but just check in where your energy levels and where is your digestion, where is your hair, skin, and nails. Look at all of these things in the body because oftentimes people have these every day and they think it's normal, but it's not normal. It's just... Also, a, so give us, sorry, give us a few examples of like thing, subjective, you know, markers that we might be able to take an inventory and, and gauge whether or not we're inflamed. You mentioned digestion. Yeah. Skin. So digestion, looking at bloating, uh, are you bloated after meals? Are you going to the bathroom one to two times a day, normal formations, uh, we, like Terry Wallace says, one to two snakes a day, as far as bowel movements are concerned, uh, you'll never poop the same way (laughs) after that um and then uh some people you know many people will just go every other day but they're not they don't consider themselves constipated Mm -hmm. but we would say okay that's not actually normal unless you're fasting that's not normal so that's like what's going on there with the microbiome so that's like a check engine light for us um obviously looser stools more frequent bowel movements is not normal um that's from a digestive standpoint and then the like the outer third of your eyebrows is it can be a sign like thinning the outer third of your eyebrow thinning can be a sign of thyroid problems Mm. and that's a lot of women know that like yeah the heck that is me and i'm not saying you cannot diagnose thyroid problems with just that but it means okay these are pointers to say maybe this is subject clinical let's run a lab to confirm this the outer third of your eyebrow if it's thin it could be a sign that you've got some thyroid issues yeah. going on. So it's a sign and symptom, not just in functional medicine. This is in conventional yeah. signs and symptoms from a diagnostic standpoint in conventional medicine too. Um, and then the craving salt, uh, you know, getting, that could be a sign of an HPA access issue or adrenal brain, adrenal rhythm problem. And, um, like a fatigue in the afternoon, like two to 4 PM having that like dip of uh, energy, that afternoon lull of energy. And then maybe you get a second wind. You feel like wired and tired. You um, have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, a background anxiety. I hear that a lot. Like, yeah, I just, I don't know why I'm anxious, but I always feel anxious or I'm have brain fog. Like I have trouble with word recall and name recall. Like I'll walk into a room and not remember like why I walked into a room. These are ubiquitous like every everybody that i talk to has various degrees of these i shouldn't say everybody a lot of people do but that doesn't that just shows you the level of chronic inflammatory problems existing on a spectrum not all these problems are diagnosable not all these people have a diagnosable health problem but they are somewhere on this inflammation spectrum that we shouldn't settle for in most cases a lot of improvements now whether that improvement is i'm 50 percent better i'm 100 percent better 
we have influence in my job and what I'm imploring people to ask themselves is what's the healthiest I can get? What's, what's the most I can do? What, what, what can my body do here? So those are some things to check in um, with the inflammation. And then as far as the foods are concerned, they'll get like, for example, if their digestion score is higher, I recommended some herbs and lifestyle practices specific for gut-centric inflammation hmm. or like even food prep standpoint. Like I said in the toolbox in the book, focus on more cooked pureed foods. Have like soups and stews because, I mean, I'm sure you see this too with your people that you talk to, is that people are eating these salads and all of these raw vegetables and they feel horrible from them. <laughs> and they're like, what the heck? I can't even eat a salad. Well, their gut-centric inflammation is probably higher and they need to basically give the gut a break and pre-digest it in a way by cooking and pureeing it or making it soups and stews. Tell, okay, so tell, talk to me about salad intolerance. It's super <laughs> interesting because I eat a salad. I try to eat a salad every day. I don't know, you know, I sometimes fall off the wagon, but I eat, you know, I'm, I'm uh, supplementing the, you know, if I'm not having a salad with roasted vegetables or sauteed vegetables, yeah. things like that. But so why would um, raw greens be more difficult to digest than cooked greens, for example, so or, or vegetables? The plant fibers, because even though the, the greens, like the spinach or the arugula, all these greens that people are having in their uh, field greens, they are low FODMAP, meaning they, they aren't having these fermentable sugars. They are, quote unquote, friendly from a dysbiosis standpoint or a small intestinal bacterial over a SIBO standpoint. But it's the plant fiber. It's just too hard to digest for these people. Their gut's just too taxed. Hmm. And digestion requires a lot of energy. And it's just too much work for what the gut's capable of doing. Hmm. So you kind of have to give your gut a little bit of a break, having soups and stews. And I think, honestly, that's just part of the rise of the carnivore approach. Because people are having this problem. And it's like forcing people to look into these things because they are having problems with basic healthy plant foods. Yeah. And I don't think it's that people are eating too many salads. Like people are not doing that in the U S but it's the other, it's the background of all these other inflammatory products yeah. and, you know, more broadly speaking, gut dysbiosis yeah. across the board from like antibiotic overuse, C-section birth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not the salad's fault. For it's sure. not the, yeah. It's not the salad's <laughs> not fault. So I think so. I, I feel great on a salad. You feel great on a salad. So there's many people that do fine with the salads, yeah. but so this is about, again, what works for you. And for a time being, we'd want to give your gut a break, focus on these sort of soft cooked, like uh, gentle vegetables that are soft until you get your gut to a place of resilience and fortitude. So it can do its job. I like that. So it's not forever. That makes a lot of sense. Any other sort of ancillary um, supplements or practices that could help in the gut healing process? I mean, do you talk about glutamine, yeah. things like that, bone so broth? L-glutamine, bone broth, those are in there. Um, and marshmallow root. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so those are some things I think, I think of. And then from an antimicrobial standpoint, things like caprylic acid, things like oregano oil, Pal de Arco. Not all of these are in the toolbox, but a lot of them are in the toolbox. But these are different agents that we use to basically bring a regulatory mechanism, bring things that help to shift the microbiome in a way because a lot of people have dysbiosis, bacterial um, imbalances, overgrowths, and yeast and fungal overgrowths. And this is measured on labs and we can quantify that. What do you think about eating late at night? Uh, so eating late at night 
impact some people. So you have to, I, I deal with people with really strange like work schedules, like night turns and nurses that work strange hours. So sometimes it's needed and I'd rather someone fuel themselves. It's not an ideal work life, but most people can't change their jobs and that's just their routine. So I still think that there's, if you're eating the right things for your body, there's overwhelmingly good things and you maybe can't change it during this time of your career or what your schedule of new moms or dads or whatever. Um, you may be not eating ideally, but from a circadian rhythm standpoint, ideally it should be looked at because your body is digesting and processing foods when it should be full on like in rest mode. So it's not ideal. I could see it definitely having some pitfalls, but I haven't seen it be a deal breaker for most people um, as far as their health is concerned. Yeah. I have a hypothesis that eating late at night um, well, it hinders digestion in, in part because peristalsis slows, mm -hmm. but it can also set you up potentially for bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine because you've got food lingering yeah, putrefication, there. Putrefication, yeah. yeah. When it when it shouldn't be because it's just a slower transit yeah. to the to the large intestine. That makes sense. Yeah, I could definitely see that being the case. Yeah. So, what are some foods that people should do? like? Are you a fan of meat, eggs, things like that? Yeah. So I, I am, and I it, the the conversation that I'm having in the inflammation spectrum is again how are you operating? So albumin and egg whites can be a problem for some people. I love eggs. They're like, I, I eat eggs almost every day. I have them raw. I have them in omelets. I have them in smoothies. I have them every day. I think they're amazing from a choline standpoint, omega standpoint, B vitamin standpoint. They're one of nature's multivitamins, but the egg whites, the albumin can be a problem for some people. Mm. And you can measure that on a lab. They will have flare up of symptoms from them. So we can talk about, and I break it down in the book to sit, look about the, is it the egg or is it what the chicken is fed? Is it the, um, and some people tolerate duck eggs better than they do the chicken egg. So we can sometimes find a way to get that food medicine in a way that works and jives with their biochemistry but sometimes not. So I, I think eggs are good. I love wild caught fish. I think that's a healthy part of people's diet. Um, and grass fed beef, yeah, I like them all. But the higher saturated fat foods don't work for some people, both a few different ways. And that's not just animal fat, that's the coconut oil as well. And I know that you've had this conversation with people. So the people with the APOE4, people with the 3-4 and 4-4, these gene alleles that you know so much about, they can be a problem, too much saturated fat. So we're saying grass-fed beef is great, and it is. We're saying coconut oil is great, and it can be. We're seeing ghee is good, and it can be. Uh, but for some people, I see it impacting their labs negatively, um, meaning their inflammation levels were spike, will spike. There and because of the genetic issues, and I think the intestinal permeability with the endotoxemia and those lipopolysaccharides is from the gram negative bacteria that it, it's creating systemic inflammation from these healthy foods. Yeah, go into the, just kind of spell that out so you can eat um, a certain type of fat essentially. And I think the literature uh, really kind of puts the spotlight on saturated fats in this yeah. regard that increase the translocation of these bacterial products from the inside of your gut into circulation. Yeah. So the lipopolysaccharides are these bacterial endotoxins on gram-negative bacteria that we all have gram-negative bacteria, but people with the dysbiosis or these bacterial overgrowths, they're higher amounts. And the research, research suggests that higher levels of those lipopolysaccharides saccharides can induce or increase intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome. So you have that going on. And then you have a uh, saturated fat, mainly those liquid saturated fats like and again, I, I don't have a problem people having like these 
butter, coffees, and uh, MCT oil and coconut oil think, things. But those liquid fats can translocate, as you said, those bacterial toxins. Look, it's absolutely better than the standard American breakfast. No doubt about it. What, what I'm trying to say is just because something's better doesn't necessarily mean it's optimal. Mm -hmm. And you may want to look at these little things to optimize it. I'm not here to stress anybody out, but I'm just saying maybe just look into your health. And if you're not where you want to be, look at these tweaks to take you to the next level. Yeah, I'm definitely concerned about the eating, the, the consuming of too much saturated fat, um, especially when it's like an isolated oil form mm -hmm. or even maybe hard cheese. Yeah. You know, cheese, dairy is actually one of the few foods, I think it's the, the only food where it's got the a higher proportion of saturated fat than it does other fatty acids. Yeah. All natural fat-containing foods have saturated fat in it. Yeah. Breast milk, nature's <laughs> perfect food, has saturated fat in it. Yeah. Extra virgin olive oil has saturated fat yeah. in it. Um, but usually it's a very small proportion. Yeah. In dairy, I think it's it's the predominance. Yeah. It's the predominant fatty yeah. acid. And that's a good point, too, because I think red meat gets the... Red meat is not just saturated fat there's a lot of good omega fats in there too so it's definitely i think the research has like a certain threshold that these people do well with i don't know it offhand but we typically will guide people and sometimes track in like a chronometer or some sort of food tracking app to kind of get a baseline of like it's not a perfect science but kind of see more or less how much saturated fat are they getting in their day and we may have to titrate down from there if we see think something like c-reactive protein or these inflammatory markers keep spiked despite eating all these healthy foods yeah I'm doing um, no coffee at the moment, but when I drink coffee, I uh, I love uh, I do um, occasionally enjoy like the butter coffee thing, purely because I think it tastes great. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I I do I like the with the ghee and I do like the MCT oil, but the MCT tends to what I've seen impact people less because it's just the medium chain triglycerides, it's not the full saturated fat. I don't see it impacting people as negatively. Yeah, as just the coconut oil. I mean, it has a different. Um, route of digestion yeah. right like it doesn't go through the, the lymphatic liver, duct yeah. it just yeah. goes straight to the liver mm -hmm. um gets converted to those ketone bodies uh i don't know if lauric acid in coconut oil behaves the same way it, yeah i think it behaves more like a long chain fat mm -hmm. i could be wrong um but yeah those those isolated mcts are purely like you know c8 c10 mm -hmm. um yeah they go straight to the liver so i'd be interested to know like how those you know in isolation affect lipids and things like that yeah yeah. So, I mean, again, the, the, I think that the idea between behind the butter coffee is actually quite a good one in the sense that we're getting people off of the garbage and the junk food and we're providing them a fat source plus the caffeine source and everybody loves coffee or a lot of people do. Uh, it's a great, I almost see it as like a gateway into metabolic flexibility. Like mm -hmm. let's like wean them off of this junk food, but then I guess past their, that initial sort of missionary for wellness, we need to like sometimes go past the missionary for yeah. us. Do you ever eat uh, processed foods, packaged processed foods? I was just telling you before we, uh, we hopped on, on recording that I love these gluten-free uh, uh, Goody Girl cookies. And I have no like financial connection to Goody Girl, but uh, they're the birthday cake cookies. And they're freaking amazing. Where do you, where do you find them? Uh, Whole Foods. Whole Foods. Yeah, but they're like really good amazing cookies what are they made of it's like rice flour. rice flour yeah and it has sugar in it it's like not it's not great but yeah. it's better and i don't eat gluten so i'll uh don't have too many good girl cookies sometimes hmm. but i mean no i mean my limit is like i won't have gluten i have autoimmunity on both sides of my family hmm. i don't want to play that game 
and I know it's more than just gluten, but I, that's like my, we all should have our own non-negotiables. And for me, it's that and some other things. Hmm. What are the other things? Uh, I limit my sugar. So if I'm having that, I put, if I'm nine times out of 10, I'll say, okay, I'm going to have this, even though I know it's not ideal, but I will like limit myself on how much sugar I'm having. Um, and then, uh, conventional dairy, I'm not going to like have a big glass of milk. Mm-hmm. Um, those are basically it. Those are ba- my basic non-negotiables. It would be conventional dairy and gluten. Yeah. The gluten thing and the link between gluten and autoimmunity is super interesting. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, and I talk about this in, in my book, Genius Foods, I'm sure you talk about it in the yeah. inflammation spectrum, but that celiac disease seems to be the sort of mediator between this whole this whole constellation yeah. of autoimmune conditions. Yeah, that's so, a good way of putting it. Yeah. Totally, yeah. And I think a lot of times people have other autoimmune conditions they don't realize there is sort of the celiac spectrum going on. And hmm. in, in not all cases, but a lot of them. Yeah. Have you been glu- uh, gluten-free for a long time? Long time. Hmm. Yeah, like 13 years, something like that. Wow. How do you get into this? How do you get into f- like functional medicine? So... It, I was, I grew up in a home in like the eighties and nineties outside of Pittsburgh. My parents were really into wellness. My dad was one of those bodybuilders in the eighties, like the Arnold Schwarzenegger's, uh, like era. He was like one of the Mr. Mr. Pittsburgh guys. I thought it was normal for like people's dads to be lubed up with baby oil (laughs) (laughs) with like ripped six packs and like turquoise speedos. And I just remember him by the pool and my mom with those big eighties, like, uh, camcorders, like getting the techniques right. So it, that I used to go to the competitions and they used to go to the health food stores. It was just part of that culture then relative to the eighties and nineties, right? I mean, it was not what it is today, but we went and got the raw, uh, local dairy. We got like the sprouted granola. And I just saw like the difference between what we were eating and what my friends were eating at school. And that, then evolved to me like wanting to get into wellness. I owned it for myself. It wasn't just something I did at home. So I went to an integrative medicine school out here, Southern California University mm-hmm. of Health Sciences. And I heard of a guy who had gone to my school. He was older than I was. Uh, his name's Detis Crosi, and who even today is one of the, like, the godfathers of f- functional medicine. And he was talking about this, this field of healthcare called functional medicine. So that at that point I honed into like, okay, this makes sense. This is how I want to help people. Cause there's a lot of different modalities and schools of thought within wellness that you can really help people. But for me, I love the lab aspect of functional medicine and being evidence-based in this way and, and watching that data improve. Um, and then the, uh, obviously getting people healthy and using food as medicine and using these different natural approaches to health. Uh, I love the amalgamation of, of both of those aspects. That's so awesome. My um, entry into this world started when I was in mid high school, I became interested in bodybuilding actually. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. I was uh, just cause I was an introverted computer nerd. I was not, yeah. you know, I was not excelling in sports or athletics or anything like that, but I just, uh, I became fascinated by the body and how like, you know, it, I, my original, uh, point of fascination was, I think it was in part exercise and nutrition, but it was also supplementation. Mm. I became sort of friends with this, uh, this guy who had a, uh, there was like a, it was an, it was not a chain. It was just like a random supplement store mm-hmm. in Chelsea, the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. Um, I went to high school in Chelsea in Manhattan, uh, public school. And, um, on the walk home every day, I would pass this supplement store. And one day I decided to walk in 
And I became friends with the guy who worked there behind the counter. He was like a really knowledgeable dude. Mm -hmm. And I just saw all the, the, the potions and the powders on the wall as being, you know, the potential window for me to transcend my like, you know, kind of scrawny, non-athletic, introverted, shy self. Mm -hmm. And so I started to like, in tandem with like, you know, starting to work out for the first time, I started, you know, messing around with these different supplements and things mm -hmm. like that. And he would give me a discount. So I'd get to try a bunch of different things. And then he started giving me some literature to read and I just became fascinated. I was like That's obsessed. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. And I mean, you'll know this, but like the, the concept of ketosis and the ketogenic diet that's been used in the bodybuilding community for a long time long so we time. talk about like a fad like yeah. it's it's just i mean when the when the zeitgeist passes on the ketogenic diet the the science will remain like yeah. the the data and like the health benefits will remain even when the world's not talking about 100%. it 100 percent, dude can i tell you when i was in high school i read a book I, I bought a book with i don't know what money i had but i was you know i was in high school I saved up my lunch money and I bought this book by Lyle McDonald. It was called The Ketogenic Diet. And it was like, I think he self-published it or something, but it was like on, on paperback. And it was a really technical text on like the ketogenic diet. And this mm -hmm. was 1997 mm -hmm. that I, I began experimenting with it. I, I remember I tried all these different crazy diets. I didn't have, I had a good relationship with food, mm -hmm. but I was just kind of a tinkerer. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I'm like, I kind of don't get sometimes the thing about diet culture because I'm like, I think dieting and trying all these different things is cool, but yeah. that's like a whole other conversation. But anyway, yeah, I once, so I once, there were like two diets I remember that I tried that were awful. One, I did a diet where it was like for two weeks, nothing but protein powder and flaxseed oil. <laughs> <laughs> what was it called? I think was it was it? called like the, I don't recommend this to anybody yeah, listening, right. <laughs> okay? But I think it was called like the fat fast diet nice. or something like that. And I just, I gave it a try. It was yeah. just literally just whey protein powder. What did your family think when you were doing that? Did, like, they thought I was nuts, but they went, they went along with it. Did I they mean, ever do it with you? No. And not that one specifically, but. <laughs> no, they never did any of it with me. I was just kind of in my own world, you know, like I spent a lot of time in my bedroom, like researching, playing, you know, maybe some video games. I was a programmer, so I was doing that, but I spent a lot of time on these like news groups and I was accumulating in my room all these like supplements. So that was like the one, that was one diet that I did. But at the same time I was reading about like healthy fats. That was like when yeah. it dawned on me that fat is good, you know, some yeah. fats can be really good for you. Yeah. And I became, I think I read a book. It was like Udo Erasmus, you know, like the fats that heal, the fats that kill. So yeah. I became really interested in omega threes at a very young age. Um, and then there was, uh, and then I started looking for ways of getting like whole food protein, but in a really uh, efficient and economical way. So I started eating lots and lots and lots of canned tuna. Interesting. So I would go with my mom to the supermarket and I would make her buy me just like stacks of canned <laughs> I love it. white albacore. Yeah. And that didn't, I don't think that lasted that long, maybe, maybe a few months. I mean, thankfully it didn't, you know, I didn't get like mercury poisoning yeah. or anything like that. But. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, a book that really impacted me early on in the 90s, same thing, around the same time, 97, uh, was Jordan Rubin's book, Patient Heal Thyself. Do you know Jordan Rubin? No. He, he's a guy that actually started Garden of Life hmm. later on, and then he sold it. And he does great things with Josh Axe right now, too, with Ancient Nutrition. But he had this book in, like, 97 and showed he had horrible, like, emaciated Crohn's disease and how he used food as medicine to heal himself. I remember that being a young kid in, like, middle school and seeing this, what food could do for somebody. And... Uh, yeah, it, it's it's funny. Like we were such nerds about this stuff. Like not normal things that like 
teenagers would be reading. But. Totally not normal. <laughs> but I also kind of like remember it. And uh, tell me if you if you experienced this experienced this growing up too, because we're about the same age. Like I always re- would would notice that my friends would come to me with like health questions, mm-hmm. and you know I think intuition plays such a a large role in all of this. Yeah. You know. Um, it's not enough just to like harbor facts, right? You've got to have a good sense of intuition, a good way to sort of connect the dots Mm -hmm. and to see patterns where others maybe don't. Yeah. And I would always kind of, um, you know, one of the things that kind of inspired me to keep going with it was that people would always like come to me with health questions or take my advice when it came to like fitness goals. And, you know, I was not, uh, formally trained, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that was just a clue to me that I had some kind of like sixth sense about yeah. this stuff well i think that's the duality of not to sound all medical medium yeah right <laughs> this is not medical medium but the duality of functional medicine duality of i think being a health uh, coach or health advocate or just a educator in this space is the science and the art and i think that's what you're seeing you know the data but you also knew like how to make this work on an individual basis and you knew how to put it in terms that people could understand yeah so true. Well, The Inflammation Spectrum, fantastic book. You guys should go check it out. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to touch on? I mean, this is like your your platform. Thanks, man. I, I'm super pumped about something that we launched recently. It's, it's our online group class because I want to make functional medicine continue to make it more accessible and more affordable to people. I mean, all of my patients, normally it's one-on-one via webcam and they're all working class people, but I wanted to go a little bit more because it is like a critique and, a, and, and justifiably so that functional medicine should be more accessible and affordable. So what we can do with the group class, we can get like a hundred people in the class and instead of me spending a hundred separate hours or really 200 hours really, cause I spend about two hours, the initial consultation of, I can get it all done in one session because I'm drop shipping labs to them, blood labs. I put all the blood tests with my team on spreadsheets, but we're, during the class, I'm, I'm going over all these inflammatory biomarkers and the hormone biomarkers and all these labs that we do in functional medicine. And I'm saying, okay, if this number is high, it means this. If it's low, it means this. So the person in, you know, wherever, Nebraska across the country is able to say like, oh, wow, like that's what that means. So it's informing and giving, empowering the person. Uh, and then we have action steps for everybody too. So I'm super pumped about this. We just launched it. Um, but I'm excited to see where it goes. But the early reports from people who have taken the online class is that they're really, uh, they really benefited from the content they received. Hmm. That's awesome. Cool. Well, we'll check that out. Uh, before we get to the last question that gets us to everybody on the show, how can listeners um, connect with you if they've got follow-up questions, want to uh, you know, maybe see you as a patient? Yeah, drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. Instagram, doc- Dr. Will Cole, D-R Will Cole. Um, yeah, that's the main place. Dope. Well, dude, thanks for uh, coming on the show. I really appreciate your Thank time. Thank you, man. I really appreciate this. It's been a lot, this has been a dream of mine. Now it finally happened. Dude, yeah. Well, <laughs> likewise. We got to, we were like following each other for a while on social media and then yeah. we became, we hit it off at uh, Revitalize. Yes. Like at uh, our friends Mind Body Green, they have yeah. this like wonderful event every year. Yeah, I know. It's an amazing event. You're a vi- you've been with them. Like you've been writing stuff for them for a long yeah, time. Yeah, early days. Early days. Yeah, one of the OG people. That's amazing. Cool, man. Well, uh, again, this was fun. What, um, what does it mean to you to live a genius life? It's having a healthy relationship with yourself with, and having a relationship, healthy relationship with food and your body and just being in balance, whatever that means for you. That to me is a, a genius life. Brilliant. 
concise, succinct. Um, well, dude, thanks for coming on again. And to all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for your time and attention. I value you. Take a moment, share this episode of the show, tag your favorite uh, quote from Dr. Cole or I, and I will catch you on the next episode. Peace out, yo.